swiping cryptocurrencies through the back door, evolving state of data breach lawsuits, and cutting through the AI hype. These stories and more on this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Nick Holland. Australian police in Queensland are pursuing a criminal investigation into what may be one of the first instances of a company swiping cryptocurrency using a software backdoor after a business deal went bad. Tell us more, here's ISMG's managing editor, Jeremy Kirk. The cryptocurrency space is wild and woolly these days. There are more than 2,000 virtual currencies since the most famous one, Bitcoin, launched in 2009. But the emerging market area is rife with scams and has little regulation. An incident in Australia illustrates just how risky dealing in cryptocurrencies can be. Police in Queensland are pursuing a criminal investigation into what may be one of the first instances of a company swiping $6.6 million worth of cryptocurrency using a software backdoor after a business deal went bad. Bipower Party of Newstead, Queensland and Soar Labs of Singapore had planned to establish a cryptocurrency exchange in Australia. Soar Labs acquired a 49% stake in Byte Power Party, which was a deal worth about $5 million. Soar Labs paid $100,000 in cash, but the balance was paid in Soarcoin, which is a virtual currency the company created last year. Soarcoin is based on Ethereum, which is a blockchain-based platform that allows for the issuing of virtual tokens and hosting of smart contracts. Byte Power Party was given 306 million Soarcoins, which was worth about 1.5 cents each at the time. But the deal soured in January. Soar Labs became unhappy that Byte Power Party was selling off its Soar coins to pay debts and backdated salary to directors. Soar Labs then used a backdoor coded within the Ethereum contract behind the Soar coins. On January 1st, it suddenly withdrew 214 million Soar coins from four electronic wallets belonging to Byte Power Party. Byte Power Party wasn't informed when it made the deal with Soar Labs of the power the company had over its own currency. Soar Labs CEO Seth Lim disputed that the power, which is known as a zero-fee transaction function, was a backdoor. Security experts disagree, though. Lim says that the code was publicly visible and that Byte Power Party should have looked at it before signing the deal. The tweak in the code allows Soar Labs to move coins at will from anyone's wallet. The backdoor is still in the code today. Experts say it's difficult to find a backdoor in the source code of new coins, but they warn that any company that is getting paid in virtual currency, particularly in newly created centrally issued coins, should audit the code closely. Last week, Byte Power Party reached an agreement with Soar Labs. Soar Labs will pay the company $1.7 million and return 5 million Soar coins. Queensland's criminal investigation continues. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Just as the cyber threat landscape is evolving, so too are the data breach lawsuits filed in the wake of attacks. For example, more suits are tied to ransomware attacks and involve efforts to recover related expenses. This week, my colleague Marianne Kulbasuk-McGee spoke with John Yan Tunis of Morgan & Morgan regarding recent litigation trends. Hi, Marianne. How's it going? Hi, Nick. So, Marianne, what can you tell me about settlement suits that we're seeing? Well, we're seeing the sorts of litigation or class action lawsuits that get filed in the wake 
of data breaches changing a bit. Before, usually what we would see is plaintiffs in the case alleging that you know, the exfiltration of their data has uh, potentially resulted in these breach victims becoming um, a potential victim of ID theft and fraud and that sort of thing. But what we're seeing now is as the um, number of attacks involving ransomware uh, sort of heats up, we're seeing class action lawsuits being filed in the wake of those attacks, but the twist is a little bit different. The plaintiffs in these cases, and one in particular, says that you know because a vendor of an EHR product, for instance, uh, was put out of service, it also impacted physician practices' ability to care for their patients. So in, in one lawsuit that we saw that was filed earlier this year, um, which could become a trend, the doctor practices were the victims because they couldn't properly care for their patients because they couldn't access patient records. And so the the expectation is that we're going to see similar uh, sorts of um, lawsuits where ransomware impacts other companies, not just the company that was um, attacked, but other companies that depend on the services of the company that was attacked. Oh, that's interesting. So there's kind of a knock-on effect there. That's correct. So let's let's hear from John Yanchunis himself uh, on the type of damage that some recent ransomware attacks have inflicted. In connection with the Allscripts case, which we filed earlier, and I can talk about this in greater detail, doctors and physician groups all around the country for a period of eight days were unable to access their calendar, patient records, as well as do any billing. So you can imagine doctors who typically will reach out to patients to say, remember, come in tomorrow or the next day for your appointment. Uh, They had no idea who was showing up. They had no idea when a patient showed up, what that patient's medical history was, unless they could recall from memory, had no idea what prescriptions that patient had taken, as well as the inability of being able to bill for any of those services. They also could not document, as many government health plans require, like Medicaid, Medicare, through electronic means, the, the fact that they were seeing these individuals. So when the system went back online, they had to take their handwritten notes and translate that to electronic records. So it caused doctors to incur both additional expense as well as lost time that they would have otherwise been used to render care to patients. So ransomware is becoming a, a bigger problem affecting more consumers than simply the target business. So, Marianne, finally, uh, looking ahead, what kind of lawsuits are we likely to see? Well, I think what will happen eventually, particularly when you have a ransomware attack that impacts doctor practices or hospitals or, you know, those sorts of healthcare delivery organizations, we may wind up seeing patients end up suing some of the healthcare providers who were impacted by the ransomware, you know, a patient claiming that, oh, you know, I had um, a bad care, I had the wrong treatment prescribed, I had a drug prescribed to me that I'm allergic to, the doctor should have known better, but he wasn't able to access my records. It'll be a matter of time, I think, before we start seeing those sorts of suits. That's great, Marianne. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Finally, Companies offering cybersecurity products are using the terms artificial intelligence and machine learning somewhat interchangeably. But the real meanings of the terms are far more nuanced than marketing hyperbole would lead us to believe. 
I spoke with Grant Wernick, co-founder and CEO of Insight Engines, on what AI and ML really mean. AI does continue to evolve, and the dream of AI has always been to mimic human decision-making processes and complete tasks in human ways. And There have been some advances there, but machines can only do what we teach them to do, and they tend to be really good at repetitive processes with exact calculations that humans aren't good at. Hence, they're called artificial intelligence, and we're not saying it's natural intelligence. AI has tons of different facets. And ML can be thought of as one of the many sub-facets of AI. It's funny, ML is often just statistics. What ML really should be is a program that has the ability to learn without explicitly being programmed uh, by humans. And we are seeing some really good cases of that uh, now. And they should really be all about scaling complex, well-defined operations. I think it gets most interesting with super large data sets. And in my experience, it's most useful when combined with human feedback or what's called human in the loop, or more technically, what's called semi-supervised learning model. Um, so self-driving cars, although not mainstream yet, are a great example of, uh, of the promise of this, where humans have been training the cars for a long period of time, and the machines are constantly getting more and more edge cases. And that's actually probably one of the hardest things is the edges. I also asked Grant how to distinguish genuine AI and ML solutions from marketing hype. That's actually really funny because um, that's an area I, I, I walk the trade show floors, as I'm sure you do, and everybody has, we're AI, we're ML in their names. And if you really dig into it, most companies aren't doing AI or ML at all, uh, like the marketing would lead you to believe. As I said before, a lot of ML is just statistics. And if you dig in deep, you'll realize that people are taking maybe one piece of their product that's doing some interesting statistics, and they're calling the whole thing um, ML. you got to really dig in and figure out what's right. So distilling marketing hyperbole requires focus on measurable, unbiased metrics, which illustrate the effectiveness of AI and ML solutions in real-world scenarios. So that's actually why you're, it's like you really got to dig into these products. One of the issues, though, is, is it's pretty easy for for companies to say, oh, wait, that's just something slightly different and then claim it's AI. So it actually requires a pretty trained eye to realize, okay, there's something really different. It's not just some rule triggering it. And so you, you really need to have products that have a level of transparency so you can earn the trust of the customer. And that's, be, and that's because no solution is perfect and the security teams need to understand where the limitations exist, what's actually happening, and they need to be able to know what they need to do to compensate. And so this whole idea of like black box human behavior stuff is not something that I think is is a smart way to go because when a human can't understand it, it's not helping us. That's the ISMG Security Report. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.